0: A true English artist makes his debut movie with American Gothic influences rooted deep in his heart. This independent horror drama premieres at Cannes Film Festival in 1990 to critical acclaim. One critic going so far as to declare the movie's status as already a cult. One of the foremost critics of the time, Roger Ebert, compared the direction and storytelling to that of David Lynch and his then-recent movie Blue Velvet. Ebert even went as far as to tout the movie as better than Blue Velvet. It was picked up and distributed by Miramax in the USA and was destined to be an indie horror hit. The movie was The Reflecting Skin by Philip Ridley, and chances are you've never even heard of it. Hi, I'm Duncan McLeish, and you're listening to Chronicle Podcast, an almanac of old world horrors. Ignition, T-minus 10, 9, 8... Welcome back to Chronicle Podcast, an almanac of old world horrors. I'm your host Duncan McLeish, and this is episode number 5 of season 1 of the show. In this season, we're looking at the vampirism subgenre of horror within European cinema. Last episode, we looked at Jess Franco's Count Dracula, and in this episode, we're looking at the Reflecting Skin from 1990. If this is your first time listening to Chronicle Podcast, please go back and listen to our debut episode. It sets the stage for what's to come on season one. Can I thank everyone who checked out episode number four and left me all the kind words of support and feedback on Facebook. Our group page may only be small in numbers, but the voices of those who are members over there are loud and passionate about horror cinema and I am immensely proud to be able to give you content every two weeks. To join the Facebook group page for the show, please head over to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Chronicle Podcast. This is the penultimate episode of season one of the show, but we still have one more fantastic movie yet to cover. And as I stated at the top of this show, this podcast is dedicated solely to European horror cinema with this season focused on the vampirism sub-genre. The final episode will cover the Swedish horror masterpiece, Let the Right One In. However, let's get back to this review, which, unlike the others in the season, will focus less on the story behind the movie, instead covering many aspects and cement my love for this arthouse cult classic. You're listening to Chronicle Podcast. Stay with us. The movie follows the events of one summer in eight-year-old Seth Dove's life. Seth, played by Jeremy Cooper, lives in relative isolation in an American rural community sometime in the 1950s. And as the movie opens, we see him and his friends, Eben and Kim, playing in the surrounding fields. They're blowing up a frog using a reed as a straw and when it is eventually inflated to a gargantuan state they place it out on the road. When a local English widow called Dolphin Blue played by Lindsay Duncan passes by, Seth waits to the most opportune moment to fire a stone from his slingshot, causing the frog to explode and cascading a torrent of blood over the unsuspecting widow. Seth and his friends run away laughing and he himself heads home to a small gas station house where he lives with his domineering mother Ruth, played by Sheila Moore, and his meek father Luke, played by Duncan Fraser. Seth's mother is constantly berating his father in front of him about the smell of gasoline, which she claims is coating everything and everyone no matter how much she cleans or how much his father Luke washes. When Luke and Seth go out of the house for some peace and quiet, Luke reads from his pulp horror novel about vampires. At this time a mysterious black Cadillac driven by an ominous character and his gang pull into the station. Seth goes to fill up their car and has a bizarre intense altercation with the driver. During this interaction, Dolphin has arrived to complain about the frog incident with Ruth, who very quickly demands that Seth goes up to her house and apologises for what he has done. Seth goes to visit Dolphin and apologises for his prank, but she seems somewhat distant from the conversation. She tells her tale of woe to Seth, her story of how she was made a widow, Dolphin had found her husband dead one week after their wedding. He had hung himself for unknown reason and this haunts her ever since. The house is strangely decorated with many old sea hunting tools and the jawbones of sharks. During the telling of her husband's suicide, Dolphin passes comment that she is over 200 years old. Because Luke was reading a story about vampires to Seth earlier, Seth concludes that Dolphin must be a vampire. It is revealed shortly after this encounter that Eben, Seth's friend from earlier, has gone missing and both Seth and Kim sneak back into Dolphin's house believing that she has kidnapped the boy for blood. They vandalise her bedroom and when she comes home the boys attempt to escape. They come downstairs to find her crying and voraciously masturbating. She spies them as they attempt to flee and the kids run out of the house screaming. When Seth returns home, he finds out that Eben's body has been found in the water cistern and the local police believe that Luke had something to do with it. It transpires that Luke had a homosexual encounter several years ago and the police were aware of it. They deduce that because of this, he may have killed the boy as well. When the police leave... Luke walks out of the house and douses himself in petrol, lighting himself on fire in front of Seth's eyes. Seth's brother Cameron, played by Viggo Mortensen in one of his first feature movie appearances, returns home from the army to look after both Ruth and Seth. Ruth is still in shock over her husband's death and Cameron's interactions with her hint at further tensions in their past. When Cameron goes to visit his father's grave, he meets Dolphin and much to Seth's horror, the two appear to have a romantic encounter. Later, Seth and Kim are playing in a nearby barn and find a decomposed fetus, which Seth believes to be the angel incarnate of Eben. He decides to take it home with him. In the morning he follows Cameron up to Dolphin's house and overhears a conversation where Cameron confesses that he was involved in the experiments behind the development of the atomic bomb. The two start to make love and in disgust Seth runs away from the home and witnesses the men in the black Cadillac from earlier abducting Kim. The atomic bomb experiments have caused Cameron to contract radiation poisoning and as his health deteriorates, Seth believes that Dolphin is feeding on him with the sickness being the result. Kim's body is found the next day and the local police believe that Luke has faked his own death and is continuing to murder children. Cameron and Dolphin are in love and are looking to run away from the gas station which is blamed solely on Dolphin and Seth's mind. He holds a conversation with the angel fetus and devises a plan to stop his brother being fed on by Dolphin. He creates a situation that means Dolphin is picked up by the men in the Cadillac. Her body is discovered the following day and when Cameron finds out He is heartbroken and breaks down into tears. With this full realisation of what Seth has done, setting up a plan to have someone murdered, he runs away into the nearby field. In the final shot of the movie, consumed by guilt, he screams as the sun sets. You're listening to Chronicle Podcast. Stay with us. This movie has been described as a child's nightmare imagination. But that collection of three words does little, in my opinion, to cover the complexities of the reflecting skin. This movie is more a coming-of-age story, with hints of horror and surrealism to boot. Through the eyes of the eight-year-old Seth, we truly run an interesting gambit of emotions. His cold disconnect towards his mother. His lack of understanding of his father's suicide. His hero worship of his much older brother. And his genuine fear of the creepy lady dressed in black living up the hill from his house. Philip Ridley wrote this movie after spending some time creating a collection of paintings which he dubbed American Gothic and has also credited the influences of Alice in Wonderland, the novel he was reading at the time. I can see the Lewis Carroll dark fairy tale novel's fingerprints in this movie when it comes to the dangers of Seth's own imagination. The artistic output of Andrew Wirth is also something that is considered to be an influence on the reflecting skin and can certainly be seen through the cinematography of Dick Pope. Quite simply put, this is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. The wide shots of the golden landscape, of which Ridley painted an even more exaggerated shade of yellow for emphasis, we're painting the roses red, we're painting the roses red anyone, contrasted with the deep, blues of the skies and the horizons leading up to that final sunset are truly some of the most amazing cinematography I have ever witnessed. Roger Ebert was right, in some respects, to compare the movie to that of director David Lynch. As with David Lynch's dark surreal stories surround suburbia, Ridley's look at the Great Plains and rural prairie communities reveals something sinister underneath. However, I think that is quite possibly where the comparison stops, possibly out with the cinematography. Ridley develops five distinctly flawed and wounded characters on a slow, downward spiral. Ruth is married to a man whose homosexual encounter has deeply damaged their relationship. She appears to be possibly holding this together through spite and is most likely suffering from depression. Cameron is clearly suffering from PTSD from his time in the army and his work on the atomic bomb has caused the radiation to slowly erode him from the inside. In his first scene of the movie, he declines the American flag brought to him by Seth, not wanting a hero's welcome. Dolphin's husband rejected their love, killing himself one week after their wedding, which is a bitter pill that she just can't swallow. And look at Seth himself. He is our narrator in this movie, and is unreliable for sure. I mean, he's only eight years old. How much of this memory is embellished or misremembered from the mind of that child? I mentioned Dick Pope earlier on, the cinematographer and without him this movie would not have the status that it still holds. His work is truly mesmerising and every single shot was painstakingly planned out under the supervision of Philip Ridley. As debut movies go, this is quite possibly one of the strongest outings by any director in cinema history. Which brings us on to composer Nick Bukat. This man's composition of very dramatic strings and orchestration could seem overpowering if heard by itself, but placed beside the striking visual images, it adds a weight and presence to the movie. The great case in point is the final shot of this movie. It's very difficult not to feel the emotional weight and gravity of that final scream by Seth at the sun. With the orchestration building up behind him and that most striking of sunsets, it's difficult not to feel the full emotional power. It's like being punched in the face by agony, grief, pain and beauty. Philip Ridley has remained active as an artist, painting, writing music, writing screenplays and theatre. He went on to direct two films after this. In 1995, The Passion of Darkly Noon. And in 2010, the vampire movie of sorts, Heartless. In 1989, the year before The Reflecting Skin, Philip Ridley wrote a book called In the Eyes of Mr Fury. In that book he wrote, when the devil gets bored he tells stories to his bats, and these bats fly to us and give us these stories as nightmares. You're listening to Chronicle Podcast, stay with us. And you've been listening to Chronicle Podcast. This has been Season 1, Episode 5 and we have looked at Philip Ridley's The Reflecting Skin from 1990. Like I said at the start of this episode in two weeks time we will be bringing you the season finale of Season 1 which has been looking exclusively at vampirism in European horror cinema. We conclude this season in a fortnight with Let The Right One In. As always, can I thank everyone who has supported this show, shared it, liked it, and left reviews on iTunes. This is the best way to support the podcast and make sure we bring you more content in the months to come. Remember, it only takes a few seconds to leave feedback on iTunes and the more of it we get, the higher in the ranks we'll be featured for other horror fans to find the show. A huge thanks to Von Herzog for the intro and outro music featured on Chronicle Podcast. Please go over and support his work. And as always, a list of all the artists whose music is featured on this episode will be listed in the show notes. The version of this movie used for the review is the Soda Pictures Blu-ray release, which is limited in the UK. This movie is about to receive a Blu-ray release in the USA in May, so please take time and go across and pick up a copy when it's finally released. Please remember that we have a Facebook group page, and you can join and contact me by visiting facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash chronicle podcast. Chronicle Podcast is exclusively available on Legion Podcast Network, surrounded by a multitude of fantastic shows. This week, I recommend listening to The Podcast on Haunted Hill. Dan and Gav are 30-plus shows in, with great movie choices, fun personalities, and plenty of content to make you an avid fan. So go over and listen to The Podcast on Haunted Hill, exclusively on legionpodcast.com. And finally, if you want to listen to more of me talk horror, then you can check out my other show, the podcast Under the Stairs, at tputtscast.com or on iTunes. Chronicle Podcast was written, recorded, and produced by me for you. Join me in two weeks' time for the season's finale as we look at Let the Right One In. But until the next time, remember... Once you have travelled, the voyage never ends. But it's played out over and over again in the quietest chambers. The mind can never break off from the journey. This is Duncan McLeish from Chronicle Podcast, an almanac of old world horrors. Until the next time. Ignition. T-10. 9. 8. Seven, six, five, four. Zero, left off.